I saw two things this past week which left me thinking about the reality of death. The first was a news report about flooding at a cemetery in air. Uh, alongside the news report was a picture of a headstone. It was of a, a young man who had been born the year after me, uh, who died a couple of years ago. Uh, and the inscription on the gravestone has stayed with me. Uh, you can see it in the photo. It said, stay young and invincible. It just seems so ironic. Because surely if there's anything that reminds us that we're not invincible, it's the fact that one day we're going to be laid in a grave with our names etched above it in marble. Uh, Two lines above the word invincible was the date of his death. If we were really invincible, we, we would only have a date of birth. But if we ever need reminded of the fact that we're not invincible, uh, the fact that one day we'll each have a date of death should bring that home to us. The second thing that that spoke to me about the reality of death this week was at the Stranar match yesterday, the the first home game since the sudden uh, passing of the club chairman. Uh, There were floral tributes placed in the centre circle before the match. And then just before kick-off, they were, they were carried to each end of the pitch. Uh, one of them was put right in front of our own uh, church's advertising board, uh, which says, because life is more than a game. And there's nothing that brings home the truth uh, of the saying that life is more than a game, uh, than flowers uh, being placed in front of it for someone who has uh, suddenly and shockingly passed away in the weeks since the last home game. Death is a reality and it's a coming reality for all of us unless the Lord Jesus comes first. And so it's not hard to see the relevance of this fifth I am saying of the Lord Jesus when he says I am the resurrection and the life. And this morning we're going to look at the the chapter in which those words are recorded uh, under the theme of the love of Jesus with three headings and the first one is Jesus surprising love Jesus surprising love do you have people in your life who would drop everything for you at a moment's notice if you needed them if you were in an accident or if someone close to you died you know that they would come straight away day or night whatever their other plans may have been they drop everything and be there for you Uh, maybe that's even been been you in in recent days doing that for someone else or maybe sadly you've experienced the opposite a time when you really needed someone and they didn't come Uh, perhaps years have passed since it happened maybe you're still friends but but it's hard uh, not to to keep thinking about that one time you really needed them and they weren't there. But if there's one person who you would have thought would have dropped everything for his friends, it, it would have been Jesus. And by the way, that's that's what you are if you believe in Jesus. If you're trusting in him this morning, you are one of his friends. In the Old Testament, Abraham was called the friend of God. Jesus will say here a few chapters later, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
Jesus then goes on to say to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And when Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you, it doesn't mean that we we become his friends by doing what he commands us. But it means that if we are his friends, if we, we have faith in him, then we'll show that by, by doing his commands. So amazingly, we can call ourselves friends of God. Uh, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever known someone, someone famous and you can say, uh, I, I'm friends with them or, or I used to be friends with them. Uh, and it makes us, it makes us feel great, but... To be friends with God, what, what a thing that is. And among Jesus' closest friends when he was on earth were Mary, Martha and Lazarus. So surely if there was anyone they could have counted on to drop everything for them, it would have been Jesus. Verse 5 makes clear how Jesus feels about them. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But those words are immediately followed by what must be one of the most surprising verses of the Bible. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, well, how how would you fill in the rest of the verse? So when he heard Lazarus was ill, Jesus went straight there. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus said to his disciples, put down everything, we need to go straight to Bethany. But that's not what it says. It says, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It doesn't say Jesus loved them, but he stayed two days longer. That would have been surprising enough. But it says that he loved them, so he stayed two days longer. Because Jesus loved this family, he stayed an extra two days rather than drop everything and go. How does that make any sense? Then in verse 14, Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus has died, and he says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. You know, later on, uh, Martha will say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, I'm glad that I wasn't there. If you need more evidence that the gospel accounts aren't the productions of mere men, you have some right here. Jesus hears that his friend is ill. He he stays put for two days. And he does it not because circumstances outside of his control, but he stays there because he loves them. And then he tells his disciples that he's glad he wasn't there to stop it happening. That sounds really heartless. Why, why does Jesus do this? What sort of love doesn't stop death when it could? What sort of love stays put rather than go and comfort the bereaved? Well, it must be a love that cares about something more than, than even physical suffering and death. And in fact, we're not left to guess Jesus' reasons, uh, or at least the the big picture. He he goes on to say in verse 15, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. 
think of Mary and Martha weeping and wondering where Jesus is. But actually it's for their good, their long-term, eternal good that Jesus stays away. I was glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Of course, the disciples, they already believe in Jesus, but Jesus wants to strengthen and deepen their faith. And so his apparently delayed response is because he wants their faith to grow. But how will waiting two days, two extra days, strengthen their faith? It's important to realise that even if Jesus had left as soon as he heard that Lazarus was ill, his friends would still have been dead by the time he got there. Uh, He gets there, he told Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, so if he got there two days earlier, Lazarus would, would still have been dead for two days. So if Lazarus will be dead anyway, uh, and Jesus knows this, Jesus knows Lazarus is dead, why time his arrival so that it's four days after the death rather than just two? Well, I think what we can say for sure is that it, it makes the miracle more impressive. It heightens the, the miraculous nature of what Jesus does. Maybe say, well, well, surely raising someone from the dead is going to be impressive whether they've been dead two days or four days. Uh, Bringing someone back to life at any point is an amazing miracle. It only happens a handful of times in the whole Bible. One of the reasons why we're we're very sceptical when when we hear claims of of people claiming to have raised the dead today it happens a, a handful of times in the whole Bible, uh, and people are, are are claiming that it's that it's happening uh, today. But. If someone has just been dead for a matter of hours, there's always going to be some skeptic who says, well, they weren't actually dead. They just revived. They said that about Jesus. People today still said about Jesus. You know, people back then would have said it. Jesus had previously raised both a widow's son and Jairus' daughter, but both of them had only just died. Jairus' daughter dies while Jesus is en route to the house. Uh, While the widow's son was raised at his own funeral, in that culture and climate, burial happened as soon as possible, uh, perhaps even on the same day, often on the same day. But here Jesus raises a a rotting corpse that has been in a tomb for four days. Uh, You're not going to get anybody coming here and saying, well, he, he wasn't really dead. But there also might be something else going on here. It's interesting, there was a Jewish belief that the spirit of a dead person hovered around for three days and only once decomposition set in did their spirit finally leave. The first written record we have of such a belief is from 200 years after Jesus. So we can't say for for sure that, that the Jews of Jesus' day believed it, but... For something to be written down, it's probably been a belief that's been in existence for a while before it's written down. But that would explain uh, uh, or give some extra explanation uh, for why raising someone who'd been dead for four days rather than two would deepen faith and reveal Jesus' glory 
in a way that someone who'd only been dead for two days wouldn't. And so in love, Jesus leaves them to face this death alone, wondering where he is, so that when he got there, they would believe in him, not just for physical life, but for eternal life. But having said all that, there may also be reasons for Jesus' delay that we just don't know about. Jesus will answer our prayers in his time and in his way. Perhaps Mary and Martha had to learn that a large part of the Christian life will be spent waiting on God. He doesn't jump at our beck and call. He doesn't do things according to the time scale wherein we think he should do things. Yes, he will never leave us or forsake us. He promises to be with us always. He never slumbers or sleeps. He will always be with you in your trouble. But sometimes he has his own reasons for prolonging your situation that you would do anything to change. The one who created time is never late, even if we don't understand his timetable. Remember that in your trial, which you'd hoped would be over long ago. The, the one who created time is never late. And if we were able to, to step back and look at the world as a whole, uh, we, we'd see that. The fact that God let this world continue on even after man sinned means that he lets bad situations continue because he has good purposes in them. And so if that is what God is doing on a global scale, letting this, this world of sin and suffering continue because he has a good purpose, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to assume that he will bring an end to our problems the first time we ask him. When illness, when trials come, one thing that you can know for sure is that verse 4 here is true of your life as well. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Doesn't that change how we think of hardships we go through? If you come with that mindset, you'll be more likely to ask, not how can I get out of this as quickly as possible, but how can I glorify the Son of God in this? Jesus' purpose in our trials is that the Son of God would be glorified in them. Something else we can know for sure is that when grief comes into our lives, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love us. In fact, things are often the opposite way around. We think that if trials come, Jesus mustn't love us. But in fact, the very reason trials often come is because he does. and uh, Because he's at work in us through them. Uh, I, I put, put a quote on your, your handout. Someone has said, the stones of the spiritual temple can't be polished or fitted to their place without the strokes of the hammer. The gold can't be purified without the furnace. The vine must be pruned for greater fruitfulness. Sometimes we think the things that the God is doing to us are, are, are destructive, or, or, or at the very least that they're simply just hurting us, uh, but they're actually shaping us. In your suffering, don't assume that God must be against you. In fact, the, the very trial that you're going through may be one of the greatest evidences that God hasn't finished with you yet. So firstly, today, Jesus' surprising love. 
But then secondly, we see Jesus' compassionate and indignant love. Jesus' compassionate and indignant love. After this two-day delay, Jesus heads for Bethany, despite the protests of his disciples that he'll be putting himself in danger. And when he arrives, we see his compassion straight away. Martha and then Mary are both convinced that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. These godly ladies still seem to be holding on to the idea that Jesus needs to physically be somewhere in order to do something. But he doesn't try and sort out their imperfect theology then and there. Instead, he simply reassures Martha in verse 23, your brother will rise again. She just takes it as a general word of comfort that he will rise on the resurrection on the last day. She doesn't take it as Jesus saying that he's going to raise Lazarus right away. But then Jesus goes to the tomb uh, and when he gets there and sees the crowd weeping, we have the, the shortest but one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. When the Jews comment in verse 36, see how much he loved them, they may not have the whole picture but they're not wrong. If you're ever tempted to doubt whether you have a high priest who can sympathise with you, Remember this shortest verse of the Bible. As his friends grieve, Jesus doesn't stand aloof. He doesn't keep his distance. He weeps too. When Paul tells the the church in Rome to weep with those who weep, he's simply telling them to follow the example of their Saviour. And yet it would be reasonable to ask, why does Jesus weep? He knows that in a moment or two, Lazarus is going to come walking out of the tomb. So, so why weep? Well, I think the best answer to that question is that here the one through whom all things were created weeps at the intrusion of death into his perfect creation and at the havoc it wrecks on those he loves. And in the face of death uh, and all its effects, we see not just sorrow from Jesus, but anger and righteous indignation. That's where the, the word in verses 33 and 38 translated groaned or deeply moved really means. Uh, you, you see, the, the footnotes in our Bibles give indignant as an option. The reason uh, translators don't tend to use a word like indignant is they can't understand how it would fit in here uh, how, how, could, how could a word that, that, that is a sense of anger elsewhere be fitting in the face of death so how is anger and indignation fitting at a grave well again it's because of the intrusion of death B.B. Warfield in his famous essay on the emotional life of our Lord comments that the spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death and its unnaturalness. Jesus is angry because death is evil and unnatural and behind it stands Satan himself. 
Another quote on your handout says, Christ does not approach the tomb as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore we need not wonder that he groans, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. So Jesus doesn't just approach this grave to do another miracle. He comes to make war on the devil. And surely how we feel about death is one of the greatest arguments for Christianity. Because men and women know that death isn't natural. It's not a friend to be embraced but it's an enemy which Jesus came to defeat. And when we stand around the death of a loved one, we know deep down that it wasn't meant to be this way. To explain the universe without reference to God, you have to say that death is just a part of life. Just part of the process that everyone and everything must go through. Uh, to, to, to say even that God, God used... Uh, evolution to bring about the world you have to say that there was death uh, for for millions of years death animal death and then uh, and then you have humans and God looks at that world full of death and disease and and says uh, and says it's very good Christianity says no uh, death is not a a natural process it's an enemy Uh, like the farmer in one of Jesus parables the Christian looks on death and says an enemy has done this but our great hope is that Jesus like Moses before Pharaoh looks death in the face and says let my people go the end of verse 33 says that Jesus is greatly troubled as he approaches the death of Lazarus and maybe you, you recognise that phrase from elsewhere. That the same word for troubled is used twice by John in the next two chapters to describe Jesus' emotions as his own crucifixion approaches. And, and surely that's in his mind here too. As he approaches Lazarus's grave, uh, he's thinking of his own rapidly approaching death. And if Jesus approached Lazarus' tomb as a wrestler preparing for a contest, how much more did he approach the cross like that? Jesus' compassion and indignation here, they they weren't that of someone who has plenty to say but won't get involved. His emotions are, are, are those of one who's actually going to roll up his sleeves and enter into the battle, even though his involvement would mean paying the ultimate price. The death of death would take the death of Christ. The death of death would take the death of Christ. Jesus knows that the only way he can raise Lazarus is because he himself will go to the cross. The end of the chapter makes the link quite clear, especially verse 53, where it says that the religious leaders from that day on made plans to put Jesus to death. So the resurrection of Lazarus and the death of Jesus are interlinked. And not just because raising Lazarus enrages the religious leaders even more. But Jesus can only raise Lazarus because he is going to the cross. And the raising of Lazarus will only hasten his own death. For Lazarus to live, Jesus must die. For Lazarus to live, Jesus must die. Jesus doesn't raise other people from the grave as a mere miracle worker, but as someone who who must die 
uh, for that resurrection to happen. And that's not just true for Lazarus, it's true for you. For you to live forever, Christ had to die. Your only hope of resurrection is his death. When you come to stand before God, as each of us will, if your confidence is in anything else, it will fail you. Only through Jesus' death can you know life. So we've seen Jesus' surprising love. We've seen his compassionate and indignant love. Thirdly, finally, and a bit more briefly, we see Jesus' eternal love. Jesus' eternal love. There are some parts of the Bible that may not seem immediately relevant to us. But this isn't one of them. It's clearly relevant for us today. But it's also relevant for the whole world. As much as our society tries to sanitize death, as much as it tries to avoid talking about it, it's a reality that every one of us must face unless Christ returns first. You're not indestructible. One day you will die. And your only hope of eternal life rather than eternal death is found in these verses. What we have to remind us here is that even though we know how this story ends, nobody there did. They weren't expecting Lazarus to rise from the dead. Yes, Jesus had now arrived, but they think it's too late. They say, if only, uh, nobody's expecting a resurrection. As far as they knew, this was the end of the story. Martha says in verse 22, Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But, but that apparently didn't include the resurrection because when uh, later on Jesus tells him to roll the stone away, Martha protests. For Martha, the stench of death is stronger than the power of the Lord. The stench of death is stronger than the power of the Lord for Martha. But the stone is rolled away despite her protests. Jesus prays and then he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And it's often been said that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, if he had just said, come out, then all the dead in all the tombs would have come out. I love that. Jesus has to specify Lazarus or, or all the dead would have risen. And in many ways, the resurrection of Lazarus is like a trailer you see of a coming film. It's a preview of something that's coming soon. It's to whet your appetite for what's around the corner. Jesus has said back in chapter 5, verse 28, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And here we have a preview of that. To keep our faith from flagging while we wait for the ultimate fulfilment. To help us wait with patience for the ultimate release date when God's people will be released from the power of death. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Where's our, where's our proof for that? Where's our evidence of that? Well, Jesus gives us some evidence here. Lazarus hears his voice and comes out. If you take away the resurrection, you take away Christianity. We're all just wasting our time. 
But Jesus came and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he gives us a foretaste of that by raising Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus utters the words of this fifth I am, saying here, I am the resurrection and the life, it's an exclusive claim. Your only hope beyond death is found in him. No religious works, no church attendance, no outward respectability can save you. They're all empty promises for eternal life. Only Jesus can hear the words, the one you love is sick, is dying and do something about it. We are all spiritually sick, spiritually dying, spiritually dead and Jesus is the only one who can do something about it. What comfort uh, Jesus' words here have brought to his people down through the ages. And when you come to face death as a believer, you too can take comfort in the fact that he is the resurrection and the life. His raising of Lazarus shows that these are no empty words. The one who raised Lazarus has the power to raise you as well. And in fact, your resurrection will be a greater resurrection than that of Lazarus. Uh, Look at him here uh, in verse 44 as he comes on steadily out of the tomb. Unlike Jesus would be, Lazarus is still bound in the grave clothes, needing help from others to release him. And have you ever thought about what happens next with Lazarus? Even once he's unbound, once he's out of the grave... It won't be for too long, it'll be for a few decades at most. And then the tentacles of death would wrap themselves around him once more. Once more he'd be wrapped in grave clothes. In fact for Lazarus being dead, or being raised from the dead, might even have been a bit of a mixed blessing. Because one day he would have to face death all over again. Imagine going through the process of dying twice. But Jesus says in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a strong negative, will never, ever die. The resurrection that Jesus offers you isn't just for a few short years, but forever and ever. And so, death is a reality. As much as people say it is, it's not just a part of life. It is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy for Christ's people. Jesus Christ has defeated it for his people. For us in this world, death is still a reality, but it won't have the victory. Amen. Well, let's sing now of our great hope in the face of death as we turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, page 290, singing verses 8 to 12. Psalm 118, page 290, verses 8 to 12. This is the last song that Jesus sang before going to the cross. It's ultimately his song of victory over death. But through faith in him, it can become our song of victory as well. Is verse 8 not true of our enemy death? You pushed me hard to make me fall. The Lord then helped me give. The Lord my strength is and my song. The Lord he did me save. Uh, And so verse 9. In just men's tents the sound is heard of joy and victory. 
joy and victory over death, which has been defeated by the right hand of the Lord. Verse 10 emphasizes that it's God who's exalted in this, just as Jesus waited before going to Bethany so that God would be glorified. And then Christ's great confidence in verses 11 and 12, which becomes ours. I will not die, but live and show the Lord's great works to save. The Lord severely chastened me, but not to death me gave, not ultimately to death. Now open up to me the gates of righteousness, and so I will give thanks unto the Lord as through them I will go. Is that your confidence this morning? Confidence in the face of death, not because of the life that you've lived, but because of the the life and death of the Lord Jesus. So verses 8 to 12, may the sound of joy and victory be heard as we sing. Let's praise God. <laughs>